Welcome to The Stockout. This is your show at Freight Waves for all things related to the CPG industry. I'm your host, Mike Bowden, just I'm the head of intermodal solutions here at Freight Waves. Uh, I work with our data customers on anything related to rail uh, intermodal, as well as some uh, truckload uh, data as well. And also have an opportunity to uh, join the media team uh, like I'm doing with this show um, where we talk about consumer packaged uh, goods. And today on this show, we're going to dive into the topic of direct-to-consumer uh, sales and subscription boxes. Um, things will be an interesting show. If Brian Gerber, who is the CEO and founder of Hemper and Hara Brands, uh, that's a company that sells uh, cannabis uh, smoking accessories directly to consumers and through subscription uh, you know, boxes. Uh, this is really, um, sure the direct-to-consumer uh, sales has really been uh, an, an area that's gotten a lot of attention here recently. It really has been for the last several years. Um, sort of the, the best example is maybe Unilever's uh, billion-dollar acquisition of Dollar Shave Club 2016. Also, Albertson's acquisition of uh, Plated Meal Kit Company in 2017. Um, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about uh, that. Before I, I, I do, I uh, just want to give um, make sure everyone knows that uh, for those not familiar with the stockout, that we also have a newsletter uh, that comes out every Wednesday. Uh, for anyone interested in CPG supply chains, easy to sign up for that. Just go to FreightWaves.com forward slash the stockout. Uh, you can sign, sign up for the other FreightWaves newsletters as well. Uh, we publish about 40 articles a day on the website, which is the largest uh, media company that's focused on freight transportation and logistics. Uh, and then we'd also um, encourage people to join us at our uh, conference on June 21st and 22nd in Cleveland at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Some of the CPG companies that are going to be on stage talking about their uh, issues are L'Oreal and Coca-Cola. There's also going to be a supply ch uh, shipper only roundtable uh, where shippers talk about some of their strategies they've had with carriers and logistics companies. So um, it's something that'll be great to, to join if you can make it um, on June 21st and 22nd in Cleveland. I'm uh, going to just give one uh, sort of news story before we get into today's guest, which is the FTC has uh, proposed the changes to the what's called a negative option rule. I wanted to cover this one because I think it's just really uh, um, topical given today's uh, guest and uh, sort of there it is from the FTC uh, website. So what they're doing is they're, they're proposing a rule to make it easier for companies to click cancel. Um, and so they have this what's called a negative option rule, 1973 rule that the FTC uh, you know, has on the books, uh, which essentially a negative option, it gives companies permission to charge customers for additional services by way of consumers not saying that they don't want the service if they've already signed up for something. So it's a, it's a 50 year old um, rule on the book. Books uh, probably should have been updated you know, 30 years ago, but what the, the proposed rule from the FTC um, you know, suggest is making it easier for consumers to cancel, let's say a one cl uh, button click to cancel, you have to be able to cancel on the same website that you signed up for. So if it's a uh, web page, you have to be able to, to cancel on that very same, very same page. There would be penalties if, if companies don't comply with this um, and companies will still be allowed to make offers to uh, sort of prevent churn, but consumers have the option to sort of opt out and not hear those counter offers and, and just cancel it and, and, and be done with it for annual subscriptions. Companies need to provide an annual rem reminder um, before they bill uh, consumers and then uh, just added detail on disclosures, make sure consumers know what they're signing up for. So all those things look like pretty good uh, laws. And I think really sort of best practices is probably to not um, you know get into any of those gray areas and, and give consumers an easy way to 
um, to cancel if they need to. And there's a, a comment period that's open until June 23rd, happens to be the day after the conference I just um, just mentioned. So um, with that as one news story, um, I would like to bring on today's uh, guest, which is Brian Gerber. He's a co-founder and CEO of Hemper and um, Power, Power Brands is a company that sells all manner of cannabis uh, smoking accessories. They do both B2B and B2C, offers a flagship direct-to-consumer subscription box on Hemper.com. And uh, Brian's responsible for selling over 85 million pre-rolled cones per month. We're looking at a sampling of some of the products that he has offered on his, his site. A lot of good looking uh, glassware uh, there. Uh, Brian, thank you for joining me. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me. Excited to chat today. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, maybe just to get started, uh, you just tell me a little bit about your background, how you came to found this, uh, you know, your company, sort of, sort of what, what gave you the inspiration? Of course. So I started the company a week after I graduated from GW University in DC. So I literally graduated May 18, 2015, started the business June 1st. Uh, motivation was uh, Amazon wasn't really touching this category and it was really difficult to find uh, access to premium brands and new engaging products. And so I thought that a discovery outlet made sense uh, that kind of coupled replenishment plus discovery and it kind of coupled all the subscription aspects in one. Yeah, it makes sense, sort of filling a need in the market that wasn't there. Um, just just want to ask you, sort of, how, how big is the market for cannabis and cannabis accessories? Have you seen any data on that? And how would you sort of compare that with traditional tobacco products? I assume your, your market's growing, tobacco is, is declining, is that right? Yeah, totally. So if you look at total business, I mean, most people are going to a convenience store and buying a Swisher product to use recreationally with cannabis. So I would actually consider part of the tobacco industry as ancillary to the whole total industry. So we're talking billions of dollars, uh, I think over, you know, a hundred billion dollars in terms of market value uh, or size. Uh, so we've, you know, garnered a decent portion of that uh, in terms of just developing new products and kind of using the subscription box as sort of our test market to develop, you know, 20 plus products a year. And then once they're kind of proven with our direct consumer model, then we go to our retail and distribution partners and get them onto the shelf in stores. Yeah, that's interesting how the there's synergies there between the sort of subscription based model and the sort of the retail bottle, or if you want to buy something a la carte. Um, yeah, I wanted to ask you just with um, sort of the consumer market that that they're in. I mean, inflation's taken a dent out of everyone's purchasing power the last couple of years. Have you seen an uptick in 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 churn in the subscription boxes, and and which of those segments has held up better um, with consumers cutting back on discretionary items? Yeah, so definitely people have pulled back since all those stimulus checks are no more. Uh, but I think the cannabis industry itself is still growing, and I think more of those cannabis curious consumers are jumping into the game. And so it's for everyone that you know decides to take you know, quit smoking, another person jumps into it, right? So uh, I think in terms of uh, where people are cutting back is definitely on the subscription side. But what we were able to do is just kind of counter with multiple different subscription levels. So if you're not really interested in spending 150 bucks a month, you go to the $40 a month. If you're not interested in $40 a month, you go to the $20 a month. And so I think the thing is people aren't stopping consuming. So they still need this stuff. It's just a matter of like, how they get it and what they're buying specifically. 
Yeah, chaotic fury. I suddenly meant to use that that, that line. That's a that's a never heard that term before. Um, I mean, and on your costs, I mean, how how have um, you know which which areas of your costs have been most impacted by by inflation um, lately? Yeah, so I think uh, combating obviously during you know COVID, it was shipping rates were insane. We were you know containers that were costing us three four grand, and at one point were costing us twenty five brand. So I think in terms of just product cost over the last couple of years have gone up drastically. And I think also trying to match, you know, or beat inflation and give people at the company raises and things like that. So I think overhead has definitely increased as well and just trying to keep everybody afloat. Uh, But definitely on the freight side, and I think things are coming back around now. We're getting back into going to vendors and figuring out discounts and kind of getting into this like world where it's like, hey, we're going to commit to this over the course of a year or two, but we need the price to even compete in the market at this point. So we're, I think CPG companies and manufacturing companies are going to have to kind of join together and be better partners throughout the next, you know, three to five years as kind of we scale into possibly recession or whatever's going to happen. Yeah. I mean, are there any lingering sort of supply chain challenges? I mean, any sort of raw materials, that you're you're having trouble sourcing? Not really anymore. Uh, I would say we probably got out of the supply chain issues about six months ago. But I think one of the biggest challenges, because we manufacture a lot of our own products ourselves, uh, during COVID, obviously, we were like scaling up and then scaling down and scaling up and scaling down. And so it's been difficult to figure out how much labor force we actually need to meet the demand. And demand has changed, you know, pre-COVID, during COVID, it was insane. People were over-consuming, over-buying. Now things are kind of evening out and the companies that, you know, our customers had an excess of inventory, but I think they're clearing through a lot of that at this point. So things are coming back around at this point. I wanted to ask you about the inventory um, that you have to manage. I mean, it, it looked like I saw, I think on your website, you said you have 1,600 SKUs. It seems like a really you know difficult th- you know thing to manage. Um, yeah, any sort of strategies for other companies watching this that, that you've employed? Yeah, so 1,600 SKUs, uh, I would say 25% of those are our own proprietary products. And then we drop ship or... We sell third-party brands as well because Hempers kind of turned into more of a branded marketplace where we have majority of our products and some third-party companies at this point. Uh, but we do drop ship a lot. So even though we do have a ton of SKUs, like especially in like the Delta 8 or CBD categories, we don't really keep much of that on hand. So we try to limit what we do hold here in our warehouse, but we're in a 40,000 square foot facility in Vegas and we have plenty of space, surprisingly still. So uh, we're not really running into a lot of like craziness, I think, with terms of logistics. I think for us more is just like, how do we speed up picking and packing and optimizing the warehouse as we do kind of expand? But yeah, we definitely try to take advantage of drop shipping and all types of things like that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, I heard you at another show say you, um, you manufacture your glassware products in India. I'm sort of intrigued by that. So how did you choose to do it in India versus China or Vietnam or, or elsewhere? Yeah. So when I went to GW, my college roommate, RJ, who's one of the co-founders, is Indian and had ties over there already. And so dealing with international uh, business, it's really difficult to find people who are obviously trustworthy and have your back and don't want to screw you over. So RJ actually 
kind of sacrificed the last, I would say, five years of his life living in uh, India, managing our facilities, scaling them. And, uh, you know, he's from New York originally, so it was difficult to do that. But I think having a partner that's looking out for your best interest is key uh, before you get into any international business. But that's how we landed on India. And not to mention a lot of the products we make are handmade. So we needed a labor arbitrage. So you can really only do that in a few countries. And, you know, with the connections to India, that's how we chose there. That's really interesting. That's, that's tremendous, um, you know, value just having that, um, being able to do that. Um, yeah, I want to ask you, I mean, one of the trends in uh, subscription boxes has been sort of the degree of customization and um, sort of how do you think about having the subscription box customized for what the individual consumer wants versus having something that you can really take advantage of economies of scale by having it being a little bit more more uniform? Yeah, so obviously I, I love the FabFitFun model where you get to kind of customize the box and choose things. For us, we tried, uh, we built out a custom module for that called Build-A-Box, where basically you went through like various different categories and you picked different items and so it was more customizable, but the problem was for us, the uh, every month when they had to come back to re-customize those items, it was like, oh, I missed the window or I didn't check my email in time. And we kind of auto-generated products for them and then people just start getting, you know, kind of upset about that. So I think we're going to try it again here shortly, but we're going to build out a better module and a better feedback loop where people have ample time to edit their products and sign up for new things every month and make it more um, kind of a fun gamification experience as opposed to like sending generic emails, hey, please log into your account and edit your items. So I think that definitely does have a place for customization, kind of a build-a-box model. The problem is you just have to really do it right and make sure the customers are aware of what's going on at all times. So definitely love it, but, you know, it's difficult to put into, uh, you know, plan, I would say. Yeah, it sounds like a little bit of both and execution um, is maybe the challenge there, but I think you're on the right track um, by at least allowing them to, to, to do that. Um, just any other sort of thoughts about sort of things to consider um, for CPG company that's trying to launch um, a direct-to-consumer brand, maybe another startup, you know, things that were maybe more challenging than you would have expected sort of, um, you know, sort of hurdles you came across. I would be interested to hear any, any thoughts there. Yeah, of course. I mean, most of my hurdles are kind of pertaining to my high risk industry. So pro payment processing, things like that were kind of pain in the ass. But uh, I think for anyone trying to get into the subscription world, you have to identify how you're going to keep this thing fresh and getting customers to come back every month. And I think that was what I identified. You know, 2015 was a huge subscription economy year, like Birchbox race, like I think over 100 million you know, uh, Dollar Shave Club, everybody was just crushing it. And so I think where Birchbox kind of failed was they didn't realize that you could go get every single one of these products at Bloomingdale's, Ulta's, or Sephora. Mm -hmm. And for us, mm -hmm. you know, our model was developing products that customers didn't know they needed uh, prior to even receiving it. So I think for a lot of companies, it's landing on product development, keeping the box fresh, and just keeping the engagement where you have that content community commerce the three c's of ecom i think if you can hit it on all three of those points keeping it fresh getting into the product development side early you'll have engaging consumers and they'll keep coming back for more but being that kind of trusted friend if you will to be putting on 
these consumers to new exciting products is exactly what they're looking for. So as long as you're hitting all those things, you should be pretty solid. But if you're missing that boat, people are going to subscribe and customers are getting really smart now. So they're kind of moving on if they don't really enjoy things. Yeah, I mean, it definitely has to be something that consumers want to come back for. And it helps they can't, you know, get all the products someplace else, um, sort of keeps them engaged. Um, it's trying to sell it to basically enthusiasts, really. Um, you know, I, and you invested in the high risk industry. I want to ask you about that. I mean, are there certain like regulations that you have to comply with that other industries would not have to comply with? I mean, I, I assume maybe even if the, the product that you're smoking is, is illegal, you can still sell the accessories. Um, and and there are, are there any sort of differences selling you know from one state to to a different different uh, state from your perspective based on their their legal structure and then do you, do you actually sell better in places where um, marijuana is legal versus illegal? Yes, we definitely sell in uh, a lot of stuff in California, obviously uh, as being kind of the mecca of the industry. Uh, but for example, you know we Texas is one of our largest states, and obviously it's sort of getting medical there right now, but it's not recreational. And obviously a lot of Texans are kind of running over to Oklahoma. So our Oklahoma market is really good. But I think uh, in terms of uh, like new markets opening, I, I don't think you can kind of stop it at this point. It's here to stay. And I think that, you know, for a lot of the consumers that are traveling and still consuming, you know, there's reciprocity in a lot of different states. So you go from California to Nevada and you can use your medical license, things like that. So we're making it easier for consumers to purchase and continue their habits or medicinal use, you know, throughout the different parts of the country. Um, and what was the second part of your question? Um, I mean, I was really just, you know, are, are there certain from, I, I guess, do you, do you sell better? You, I guess you answered it. I mean, you sell better in places where it's, it's already legal than, than places that's, it's not yet legal and, and, yeah, I think for shipping wise, we do look at certain paraphernalia laws for certain states. Like I know Iowa is very strict, uh, but I think at this point, you know, 20, 30 years ago, people were probably going to prison for what I'm doing today. But the laws obviously have gotten more lenient for paraphernalia. And obviously in terms of importing is still kind of a gray area, but uh, nobody wants to give anyone clarity on that. So we're just going to kind of keep running in that world. Yeah, it would be good to have clarity. I mean, we could be good to know what, what the rules are to, to comply with them. That's always helpful. Um, we got sometimes, I mean, like like the story I was talking about initially, it's like you don't have to update a law for 50 years, right? Um, yeah. Why did I ask you, I mean, you, you mentioned another show that you're working with more sort of retailers to sell a little bit more more variety of products through traditional, you know, retailers. Um, you know, how is that going? What is the the response of that? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm super excited about this. We're kind of taking on national convenience at this point. So we're trying to get into like the core marks and McLean's of the world. And, you know, we're developing, I think it's 20 new products for the convenience store market. And we're trying to be that one true category leader for what the green zone opportunity looks like in C stores to become more of a kind of hybrid between a dispensary and a smoke shop where they've got, you know, snacks and possibly cannabis at one point and, you know, smoking accessories and things kind of revolving around a lot of the flavor bans coming into effect in certain states like Massachusetts and California. 60% plus of the back bar shelf has kind of disappeared with a lot of those tobacco products being illegal now. So we're kind of coming in at the right time with a suite of products that these stores need and they're going to make 
twice as much margin as they would on any tobacco product. So I think the store owners and the chains and distributors are all super excited about us getting into the C store side of this industry because they've traditionally made, you know, 10, 15, 20% on these tobacco products when they're going to be making 30, 40, 50, 60% on the products that I'm producing for them. Yeah, that would be really exciting for them, um, for sure. I also want to ask you, just on the, on the capital raising side, I mean, if, from your perspective, is, is there still uh, companies still able to raise capital in, in the cannabis space, you know, broadly, or, or is that sort of dried up? So definitely dry right now, I would say. And you can kind of see it based on how the MSOs are purchasing, right? At times they want either better terms or they want a cheaper price, right? So if they need better terms, they're short on cash. If they're penny pinching, they've got no money coming in, right? So it's really just cyclical depending on what's going on with the multi-state operators. But I think things should be coming around here shortly. And I think a lot of companies now are walking into the world where, you know, emphasis on profits is super important. And historically, most of the cannabis companies in our industry have not turned a profit. So I think it's kind of time to put up or shut up where a lot of investors are getting upset or kind of frustrated with companies that were claiming they were going to go profitable and haven't done it. I think it's kind of time where, you know, management and C-suite are getting replaced every six to 12 months if they're not making moves. So definitely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. High, high stress situation for, for sure. Um, yeah, I wanted to ask you, I mean, your, your, your sort of nickname here, the, the king of cones, sort of, um, you, you know, you got to be so big in, in selling the, the, the pre-rolled cones. How, how did that come about? And sort of what was your competitive advantage there to, to be able to sell so many? Yeah, so in 2018, we got this super interesting opportunity where there was this massive pre-roll cone shortage in the market. And because most cones are handmade in the world, there's it's really difficult and time-consuming to scale and you need a labor arbitrage, right? So for us, we basically had a one customer who was like, hey, if you can make as many cones, we'll buy as many cones as you can make. And so we... RJ went over to India midway through 2018, set up our first facility, took us probably about six months to perfect the cone. Uh, and then we went out to the market ourselves and started selling. And we produced for a lot of the big tobacco companies in the industry. And we also produced for a lot of the big cannabis companies as well. Uh, but in terms of how we scaled, uh, we really wanted to do it right. And there's been a lot of negative uh, connotations with India and pre-rolled cones in hit in prior years because people sort of set up these like sweatshops with dirt floors and it's really not properly uh, put up. And so, you know, they might deliver your first order properly, but the consecutive orders are all a nightmare. So for us, we wanted to be the most certified facility in the world. So we're GMP certified, we're ISO certified, HACCP certified, halal, gluten-free, vegan, you name it, we've gotten it at this point. And so we wanted to produce codes in clean rooms. And if you come to our facility, it's spotless. You know, it looks like a medical office. So that's what really set us apart and our ability to scale, right? RJ hit it out of the park, being able to scale from, you know, 5 million cones to over 100 million cones a month. And the market's not slowing down anytime soon. The pre-roll category is one of the fastest growing categories in cannabis. And especially with new, you know, the connoisseur infused market coming out and obviously new states opening up, pre-rolls are just scaling because it's the most convenient way to consume. And as more of, as I mentioned, those can of curious customers come into the market, they're looking for convenience. Pre-rolls are your new 14 or 12 pack or 30 pack of beer, right? That's what people are looking for. It's a multi-pack with a micro consumption behind it, you know, a 0.25 or a 0.35 gram joint. 
and they have a pack of 10, 12, 14 plus of them. And they can just kind of, you know, go home, you know, consume, they can consume during the day and they're not totally out of whack. And, you know, it's kind of the new six pack or 12 pack now. That's very interesting. Yeah. It's really, really interesting. Um, yeah. I mean, just those sort of the whole sort of convenience angle, I think is, is, is huge for all these direct to consumer companies, subscription box type companies, really retailing consumer goods in general. Um, so, uh, very, very interesting. I've, I've really enjoyed uh, l- learning about this. We are about out of time. How can folks uh, learn more about Ember Hara brands? Reach out to you. Yeah, no, uh, at Brian at horrorsupply.com. Uh, if anyone's interested in reaching out. Great. Well, if anyone needs anything from me, uh, it's M Bowden distal at freightwaves.com uh, and hope everyone has a great day.